I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to a text you're very familiar with. Even if you have never been in church, you've heard this text. It is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. It is known as the Christmas story. And if you are a visitor today and haven't been with us, I promise you, I'm not the longest-winded preacher in the history of the world, and uh, I was able to finish up my Christmas message on Christmas time. We're not a month later, and I'm still working on it. It's just uh, we're a church that is going through Scripture verse by verse uh, in the Bible, and we happened on the Christmas story here January 19th, 2020. But the good news is this. Even though you're extraordinarily familiar with this text, I believe... um, as we open up God's Word today, that you're probably going to discover some things and and learn some things that you didn't know and hopefully will apply to your life. And today's title of the message is just simply this, Jesus, fully man, fully God. And that, for many Christians, is just a given. Uh, It's no big deal at all. But for the first several centuries of the church and even today, the idea is how in the world can Jesus be fully man and fully God? And why is that necessary? And, and how am I to respond to that? And at the end of today's message, the text itself gives three possible responses to this um, truth that is presented in Scripture. And not only is it presented in Scripture, uh, it may or may not be presented in a way in which you like. If you're more of an analytical kind of person and you want everything explained perfectly and scientifically, um, you might not like this message. But this is what God reveals to us in his word. And uh, we hold it to be true as believers in Christ. So let's begin in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So what is going on here? Well, this is about 4 BC. Jesus is born. Augustus was Caesar. Uh, he, he was um, around from about 27 BC to 14 AD and was succeeded by Tiberius. This seems like a simple historical um, account, no big deal, um, nothing really very controversial about it. The problem is this, in extra-biblical literature, in other words, literature outside the Bible, archaeology, all those sorts of things, um, frankly, this is not supported in extra-biblical literature. We know of a registration under Quirinius that took place, but it took place about 6 AD, many years after Jesus' birth. In fact, we believe in the book of Acts, there is a reference to this very census for taxation purposes. So the question and the issue in this simple first couple of verses within this chapter of the Bible is a huge one. It's, can the biblical text be trusted historically? Can it be trusted And if you Google this passage uh, out there and just on the internet, what you'll find is a lot of atheists, a lot of uh, individuals that have had difficulty believing in Scripture utilize this passage to simply say, hey, the Bible simply is not true. Here's a perfect example. And the thing is this. They go a little bit further. They say, well, this is contradictory to what all the other information we have says. But that's actually not true as well. 
It's not contradictory. It just simply stands alone. The interesting thing is this. As you look, if you're an unbeliever and as you examine the biblical text, is it trustworthy? Is it accurate? The interesting thing is almost 100% of the time, people who don't believe in Scripture always discount the accuracy of Scripture and elevate the accuracy pretty much of everything else. And the question is, if you are a believer here today and maybe you're having trouble in your faith, whether or not to really even trust the Bible is true, or if you're an unbeliever and you're trying to figure this out, how should we approach the biblical text? Should we just approach it with blind faith? Or is there good reason to? I use this example. I'm going to use two illustrations. Number one, imagine the most trustworthy person in your entire life that you love, you know, you have a relationship with. If they were to tell you something that you didn't know and you had no information from anyone else about it, the question is, would you trust them in that statement? Or would you not? Well, I would think you would say, yeah, absolutely. At some point in life, we have to live by faith. You want your children to trust you. You want to be able to trust coworkers, friends. Absolutely. The question is, can we trust the word of God as well? Well, the interesting thing is this. I want to read to you a passage from a couple archaeologists. By the way, um, there is an article on this very topic that I'm, I'm speaking to you about out in the lobby. I didn't kill like 20 trees. There's quite a few copies out there, but if we run out and you would like to pick one up and we need more, I would be happy to print more off for you. But an archaeologist says this regarding the Bible and archaeology. He says, there are indeed are instances where the information needed to resolve a historical or chronological question is lacking from both archaeology and the Bible, but it is unwarranted to assume the material evidence taken more or from the more limited content of archaeological excavations can be used to dispute the literary evidence from the more complete content of the canonical scriptures. In other words, the Bible in your hand is the complete uh, word of God. It is archaeological significant in a sense that it's thousands of years old. Now, the copy that you have is not, but the original autographs are the most substantiated of any literary document in the history of the world, bar none. Then another archaeologist writes of this, of that document. He says, as a matter of fact, however, it may be clearly stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a single biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. Why is this important? And what does this have to do with today's um, message? Well, these first couple of verses, we either reject them or we accept them. If we reject them, you have to give good reason why. If you accept them, can you accept them with no extra historical evidence? I can. Why can't I? Because I trust in Scripture. Why do I trust in Scripture? Because of a variety of things that's living and active and God uses us in, in our lives and he convicts us through the Holy Spirit and through his word. But archaeologically, it's amazing what we've seen. You see, this isn't the first instance in the Bible where we don't have extra or outside evidence 
for claims of history within the Bible. For example, for years we had no idea who the people of the Hittites were. This article talks about that. We have since discovered in the past couple centuries the existence of the Hittites, something claimed in scripture, something denied by liberal scholars and archeologists for years, and lo and behold, we discover archeological evidence of the Hittites. The same is true for Sodom and Gomorrah. The same is true for the walls of Jericho. And then that gets us to this rock. Why is this rock important? It goes to today's message specifically. Up until just recently in 1993, We had no outside biblical evidence at all that King David actually existed. So until just recently, liberal scholars, which represents the vast majority of scholars today, denied the existence of King David and virtually every story connected with him. What happened in 1993? Well, in the northern part of the country, where I showed you last week this image of a gate in Tel Dan, where Abraham most likely walked through. Well, in Dan, um, this rock, or stela, was discovered. And on it, you can see right there in light writing, is the first historical, archaeological witness that dates to the time of King David that mentions King David outside the Bible. And so archaeologically, historically, everything radically changes in 1993. Once again, proof after proof after proof after proof throughout the history of mankind of God's work being affirmed as true and accurate. King David truly existed. The very King David that we're going to be discussing today. So this gets back, once again, to the very foundation. When we say we believe the Bible to be the very word of God, that is a statement of faith. When we say we believe Jesus to be fully God and fully man, that is a statement of faith. But is it reasonable? Is there evidence? I would say absolutely. And above all else, I pray the Holy Spirit moves in your heart and opens up your heart and convicts you of who God really is, of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The very reality in which we live is evidence of a God who sets moral standards of right and wrong, of creation. And here this morning, we read about the very climax of his story within history. He sends a Savior to redeem mankind from sin. And it's unique in this sense. So verse 4, it says, And Joseph, this is the husband of Mary, essentially the husband. Mary was betrothed to Joseph, which is slightly lower than an actual marriage, but required divorce if you wanted to actually get out of that uh, relationship. And it says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the uh, town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Let's pause for a minute. So most of the time when we refer to up, we think of someone is going north. That's just the way it works on our maps. That's not the case here in the text. So if you're like me and you can't see it, if you're blind as a bat, the black box up there with white writing, that's Nazareth. That's the northern part of the country. And they're actually moving from there south 
to the bottom two boxes, if you will, with the white lettering is Jerusalem and Bethlehem. So why does it say go up? Well, because once again, historically and, and geographically, the text is accurate. You have to go up in elevation to get to where they're going. Even though you're moving south, you're moving up actually up and down through the land, ultimately to up, to a town just outside of Jerusalem called Bethlehem. That becomes just as important here in a moment as we read the text, because Jerusalem is just the capital of religious leaders, rulers, everything. And, and yet, God uses these humbled shepherds outside of the capital to bring his message of good news. It's this beautiful picture so we have Joseph going up from Galilee to um, Bethlehem. Verse 5, it says, To be registered with Mary, his betrothed. Again, that's a legal arrangement, just short of marriage, but requires divorce. Who was with child. Verse 6, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Well, there's a lot going on there. First off, what is an inn? What is swaddling clothes? What's a manger? Um, we, we, we're going to deal with that in just a second, but I want to get to the application piece here real quickly. If you've been reading or if you know the story, you know that an angel appeared to Mary, and, and Mary faithfully responded to the message of the angel Gabriel. She would do what the angel uh, told her to do. She, she just prophesied this beautiful hymn, praising God. But notice this. Just a few months later, as God had, had miraculously uh, uh, allowed this angel to appear to her, she's traveling. She's in a place not in a palace, not in a nice home. She's literally, this manger is where the, the text Luke later describes where donkeys and farm, farm animals are kept. She's in a, what we would call a barn or maybe a woodshed as far as the size. And this is what is happening to her. Can you imagine what she's thinking? Like this this. This child, this baby in me is supposed to be the very savior of the world and she's perhaps risking her life, giving birth without even a bed. What's God doing? How could, had God forgotten about her? I don't know about you and your life, but there have been times where I've kind of wondered like, God, what are you thinking? What's going on here in this relationship or this job or with my health or just in, in my ministry or my life with you and my relationship? What in the world is happening? Because I, I had in my mind what God, what I thought God ought to be doing and the blessings I ought to be receiving and, and just the, the wondrous stuff that ought to be happening. And yet I'm here in, in a situation maybe poor and penniless, Maybe I, I have no friends or family nearby or, or things are really tough and I'm wondering, where's my faith at? Is, is this really God's plan? Perhaps you're there, but Mary, she stuck with it. You'll see her, her life played out in the gospel as in the coming weeks. She had her ups and her downs, but I believe that's 
what God gives us. He doesn't give us the perfect life. He doesn't give us the perfect spiritual strength to uh, have this life filled without trials or tribulations, just the opposite. If you've ever been in ministry, you know there's this sweet aspect of being able to just serve and love Jesus purely. But there are times where when you experience people, you experience other situations where it's really problematic. Your circumstances, all sorts of things can go wrong. And you can begin to wonder, where in the world did, did things go off the rails? But the beautiful thing is, and you see this in Mary's life through the scriptures, all you got to do is turn back to the Savior, to Jesus. And all things become clear and easy because his, his yoke is light, according to scripture. Well, he continues on and he says this in verse 7 and 8, or rather 8. In the same region... There were shepherds. So we move from Joseph and Mary over to the shepherd. It just introduces these shepherds without any sort of background, any sort of reasoning. It says, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Very simple picture there. Some guys out in the field tending sheep at night. Now that might not seem very big to you, but just a quick show of hands. Anyone ever have to work the midnight overnight shift doing shift work? You ever feel alone? Yeah, you feel isolated. Kind of like members of the walking dead, so to speak, right? It's not an easy job. It's not an easy life. And as a matter of fact, most people try to get out of it as quickly as they can. It's tough. And so these guys feeling very isolated are out there with animals. So at least most shift work, you're with people, hopefully. Maybe you're stuck in some cubicle somewhere. But these guys are as isolated as they can be. They're out in the field in the dark with some sheep. That's their life. But God chooses to do this in their life, verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Doesn't name the angel, just says an angel. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord showed around them. If you look through the passages in the, in the Bible regarding glory, it usually has to do with light just a brilliant light, peace, uh, amazing, uh, just overwhelming. The glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled, not with fear, but with great fear. And that's the typical reaction, again, when you see angels in Scripture, as well as the glory of the Lord. It's just this amazing, overwhelming sight. But it doesn't just stop there. It says this, verse 10, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. That's pretty good news at that point. Fairly normal. They had been looking for a Savior to redeem them from the, the political powers of Rome and all the other nations around them. But then comes the caveat here that just throws basically all of history, all of mankind for the past 2,000 years into this perplexed state of quandary requiring a decision. It says, who is Christ, the Messiah, affirming that it is the Savior. He is Christ the Lord. This baby, this man, 
is your Messiah, and he's also the Lord God. And context is very clear here. If you read back in the the previous chapters that we've looked at, it's not just referring to like a ruler, like a political ruler. No, Lord contextually is used in reference to God. So picture this. You have some simple shepherds that are working the midnight shift, probably sleepy. All of a sudden, some angel appears to them. The glory of the Lord is showing around them. They're freaking out with fear. The angel says, don't be afraid. Here's the good news. This baby is your savior and he's God. What's going to be the response? How, will, how would you have responded? Would you have freaked out, kept it to yourself? Verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So the details are played out here, kind of strange. This man who is God, and you're going to find him laying in a manger with the animals? Doesn't seem very godlike. Certainly compared to this amazing, beautiful temple they had on the Temple Mount. Then the question is, why? Why would God have to take on flesh? Does that even make sense? Is there any reasoning behind that? Why couldn't this just be a great prophet? Or, or surely God can't be both man and God. How does that work? What is the point? Well, a few scriptures you might want to write down here. John chapter 1, verse 14. Affirmation, according to the apostle John, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. One additional affirmation that this baby is God. Romans 8, 3 through 4 describes why the flesh. It says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So God sends his son to take on flesh to condemn sin in the flesh that we might be declared righteous in him. Ephesians 2, 14 through 15 says this, for he himself, referring to Jesus, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. He came in the flesh to abolish the law and the commandments, not to get rid of them, but to redeem us from under them. They are still there. They point us to Christ. We are no longer under them. Hebrews 5, 7 through 9 gets very specific. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reference. He suffered. He suffered on the cross. He suffered before going to the cross. He walked in our shoes. He can relate to us because he took on flesh. And verse 9 says of Hebrews chapter 5, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. It was necessary 
for Jesus to be born of a virgin in the flesh. It was his ultimate plan. The question is, can you believe that? Is it reasonable? Well, God created all the world, right? I think he can do a lot of stuff, can he? <laughs> he, he is spirit. We don't even, we talk about God being spirit. We reference God, but there's no scientific test that we can test God with. We live by faith. Faith there is a God or faith there isn't a God. You can't prove either. It's which is reasonable and true. I believe the Bible reveals, his Holy Spirit reveals, his creation reveals that the Bible is true. And as it lays out the reasoning, it doesn't lay out the explanation how God is fully man and fully God. It doesn't do that. But it does lay out the reasoning why this, what we call the Christmas story, is so critical. He becomes our sin offering. He takes on flesh. He suffers and gives himself up as this offering. Not just simply to save you, but to redeem you from sin, to set you free from sin. Simple application here, really clear. God went through all of this, sent his son for all of this. Why? Because he loves us. While we're yet sinners, he died for us. The question is, do you continue to live in sin and reject this gracious free gift? Or do you believe? We're going to see three responses here very quickly. But before, in verse 13, it says, And suddenly there was uh, with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. There's their immediate reaction. They did what no shepherd, no good shepherd ought to do. They walked off the job. <laughs> they left their little animals there to the wolves, potentially. But here's the cool thing. It's this beautiful picture of guys leaving everything, their work, their livelihood, all the things of the earth, to go just see, have the opportunity to see this thing. And, and it just describes it as a thing because they can't fully explain it. They just have this miraculous experience and then they trust by faith and they have to make a decision and it's an easy decision for them. They go to seek out this beautiful thing that God has done. But the three responses come much clearer here in verse 16, 17 and on. It says, And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known to them the saying that had been told them concerning the child. Well, what was the saying? Go back to verse 10. It was this, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, this man God. The three responses, verse 18. Number one, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. They heard, but they didn't believe, they didn't disbelieve. They just stood around and wondered. 
There are a lot of people today here in this room, in this nation, that still are like, mm, man, that's so hard to believe. God, man, ah, man, I don't know, I don't know. And they're just wondering. And they're wondering all the way into the grave. The grave is coming. You were born and someday you're going to die. And the question is, what happens when you die? Is there eternal life? Is this claim of God being true? Is there heaven? Is there hell? Is there judgment? Is there justice? All those questions become very relevant when you're staring at the grave. You might be able to ignore them now and today, but at some point those questions become very relevant. You can't continue to wander and sit on the fence. Jesus was either, the famous saying is, he was either a liar, he was crazy or a lunatic, or he was Lord, the God that the scriptures portray. The second reaction, verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. This is, quite frankly, the reaction I run into at least half the time in church. This is the person that you think is a disciple of Jesus, but there are other times you're like, I'm not really sure, looking at their life. It's like they know Jesus. They could tell you the story. They could recite the, the Christmas story here verse by verse. But looking at them through their life, they seem to be constantly struggling, never quite sure whether or not to fully go all in on Jesus. Maybe that's you here today. We see at this point, she's struggling. She's pondering. Maybe she's just simply enjoying it, doesn't really say. It's not that clear. And quite frankly, many of you probably have relatives, maybe children, maybe parents and sisters. Like you're praying that they're saved because every once in a while they might mention something spiritual and you're like, yes, yes, they are saved. You're trying to pray them into heaven. <laughs> you really are. You're hoping, and we all have that. I have that. But notice the reaction in verse 20. This is how the shepherds responded, the third response. And this is where we'll close. And the shepherds returned. They didn't stick around at the manger. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. They received the benefit of this miraculous appearance of angels, but they still didn't get to have that miracle every single day. They at some point had to believe and go and see and trust. And at that point, wow, they were praising God. They were glorifying God for all they had seen and heard that had been told them. That's a response of someone who has placed their faith in God. When you glorify God, when you praise Him, you're not doing that out of, out of just religious devotion. If you truly know God, they had experienced walking by faith and trusting in him. They had seen and heard 
the very Word of God. They didn't get to see God. They saw an angel. They didn't get to see Jesus as this grown-up Savior. He was still a baby. They had to have tremendous faith. And, And I know what you're thinking, like, well, if I saw an angel and I got to see Jesus as a baby laying there, I'd believe. Would you? Would you look at this baby and go, yep, he's God. As he poops his diaper? That's faith. We actually get more than what the shepherds got. We get to to hear the rest of the story. We get to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives that was poured out at Pentecost. We get to to receive all the rest of, of Scripture. At this point, they just have the Old Testament. We have all that God has chosen to give us. We have creation testifying to who God is. There is a God. We have the very promises of God. We have the Holy Spirit who convicts us and guides us and fills us. To my knowledge, we're not getting any more. You have to decide with what God has given you. And this is it. The claim is that there is a God. He took on flesh. He was born of a virgin. He he lived this perfect, sinless life according to the rest of the Gospels. Tempted but never sinned. Willingly laid down his life. Why? Because he was a martyr? No. Because there was a purpose. You and I and all the world have sinned. And we fall short of the glory of God. And there is a payment to be paid. And that's death. Jesus paid that payment for all the world, all who believe in him. He died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and someday he will return. And he, he promised his disciples, not only would he return, but he promised them that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit. He would give out the Holy Spirit that would indwell them, that would give them a new heart. And they are no longer under the works of the law. They're no longer enslaved to the law, but they have the power of freedom to live by the Spirit. So we're no longer enslaved by sin if we choose to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what he has given us. That's what we proclaim. And that's what you have to decide whether or not you believe in. You may choose not to do it today, You may choose to wait, but we're not promised we're ever given another day. We're given this day. And I would encourage you, make the decision today. And if you believe you've already made that decision, ask yourself, are you living it out? If someone looked at your life, would they call you a disciple of Jesus? Because you so reflect Christ. And if not, what changes do we need to make? Let it start today. Let's pray. Father, if there's anyone in here who has never made the decision to trust in you, uh, I say this every week, there are no magic words that you give us. It's, it's not some phrase or hocus pocus or, or any sort of philosophy. It's just simply believing and trusting. And it's a belief and a trust that's not manifested just in words only, but in action and in deed, Lord. And you say, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You don't make it hard. You make it clear. Lord, if there's anyone here, I just pray right now, they would quietly, silently pray to you and ask you to forgive them of their sins 
and that they would just simply trust in you as Lord and Savior and, and give their life to you as you call us to believe in you, to repent and turn to you, and, and you promise eternal life, Father. And I, I thank you for those who have trusted in Christ. Thank you for my salvation, Lord, but please do uh, guide us, help us to encourage one another. Help us to make that simple step of faith every single day with the truth that you've given us and to see you move miraculously and let us praise you and rejoice in you, giving you glory in the most simple things in life, Lord. And watch as your Holy Spirit moves in an amazing way in this community. Amen.